All right, well, um, page 22. We, uh, I'm backing up a little bit here, and we'll kind of go through just as a review. This is uh, that portion there in your handout where it's divided up between people's understanding and Jesus' claims, which the understanding, their understanding and his claims matched with these verses. The people considered him to be a prophet, and Jesus called himself a prophet. We walked through what that means and how Jesus fulfilled that. And Wayne Grudem sums it up in his systematic theology by saying, Christ is, of course, truly and fully a prophet. In fact, he is the one whom all the Old Testament prophets prefigured in their speech and in their action. So we're looking at three different offices that Christ fulfilled. The first is prophet, and the second one we started last week, priest. And we considered the two main aspects of his fulfillment of priesthood, propitiation and intercession. What is propitiation? Someone remind the class here. It's a funny word. Atonement, good. Yes, satisfying the wrath of God toward what? What did God have wrath about? Okay. And why does God have wrath toward sin? And holy, yeah, great words. He is just, he is righteous, he is holy. He has to have wrath towards sin. That's what makes him a good God. Yet that puts us in a bind because we're sinners. So Jesus provides his propitiation in our place for our sins, a satisfactory payment, paying the uh, penalty we deserved. And then intercession is the other way it's, this uh, priesthood ministry is fulfilled. He interceded for us as sinners in his propitiation. The propitiation itself is a form of intercession because he was substituted for us. But he still intercedes for us as believers. He's our advocate, our perfecter, and our mediator. And we looked at three main passages you see at the bottom of page 22. Romans 8, Hebrews 7, and Revelation 1 into chapter 2 that describe... Jesus' continuing intercession for the church, okay? Hebrews 7.25 is the central verse. If you're just going to pick one to look at this, I would say pick Hebrews 7.25. He always lives to make intercession for the saints. And we have a picture of this, an illustration of this when Jesus was still alive in John chapter 17. Does anybody remember what Jesus is doing in John 17? a very important chapter theologically. Well, we better turn there. John 17. Let's look briefly and see what Jesus is doing. The first verses of chapter 17, perhaps if you have a, uh, a Bible with headings, that will give it away. What's he doing in John chapter 17? Okay. And he goes on to pray for who else? Starting in verse 13. Good. And which disciples is he praying for? Okay, well, let's drop down to verse 20. John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and look at how specific he gets. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So he's not just praying for the disciples that are there, contemporaries with him. He's praying for you if you're a believer in Jesus. Because you've come to believe in Jesus through their word, haven't you? It's been through the Bible. You're reading the New Testament, the word of the apostles. You've come to believe. And so you can see yourself in verse 20. This is one of those places where it's, uh, it's not bad hermeneutics. It's not twisting the word to put yourself in it. This is a legitimate place to put yourself in the word of God. In verse 20, Jesus says he is praying on behalf of those who will believe in him through the word of the apostles. That's us. So we get a picture of Jesus' intercessory ministry right there. And then when he goes to heaven, what does he do? He keeps on interceding. He always lives to make intercession for the saints. So he is before the Father speaking on your behalf continually. So this is pretty, pretty amazing stuff when we think, can you lose your salvation? Right? How could you if Jesus is constantly always living to make intercession for you on behalf of the Father? You couldn't. You are in Christ, and He is constantly functioning as your priest in heaven before the Father. You are so secure eternally. You are as secure in your standing before the Father as Jesus is, the Son, in His standing before the Father. That's good news, isn't it? Go. Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25. Okay, so in one sense, Jesus is seated. Now we're at the top of uh, page 23. In one sense, Jesus is seated, signifying that the work is complete. But in another sense, Jesus is actively interceding on behalf of his people. His propitiation is entirely complete. But his intercession is ongoing. Okay? Propitiation, entirely complete. Intercession, ongoing. So Jesus doesn't have to continually make atonement. Praise God for that. You will perhaps sometime in your Christian walk here encounter somebody who says that Jesus is continually making atonement over and over again. But Hebrews is very clear. He made atonement once for all. That's also in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. Once. When you offer the perfect propitiation, you don't have to do it again. And Jesus was the best and final propitiation, entirely complete, but the intercession is ongoing. So long as his people still sin, he will continue to intercede. How long will you continue to sin? <laughs> How long will the church continue to sin? There you go. Okay? So that's, that's the big idea, is that his intercession is ongoing. Okay? Well, as we Utahns well know, there are two types of priesthoods. The Aaronic and Melchizedek or Melchizedekian priesthoods. To fully understand the work of Jesus, we must fully understand the functions of these priesthoods. Now, you probably know in the LDS church, this is a thing. Like, you'll hear people saying they had their priesthood holders. They hold the priesthood. Okay? Uh, I think it's, what, around age 12, the boys become deacons and they have the Aaronic priesthood, it's said. And then, as they get older and you go to the temple, you're able to go to the temple, you have bestowed on you, if you're a male and you're worthy, the Melchizedekian priesthood, they say. 
And uh, these aren't made-up words, okay? These come from the Bible. So that part, they got it right. They didn't make up their own words. That's good. But pretty much everything else that follows after that, they got wrong. Uh, there's no way that anybody who uh, is LDS here living in Utah has either one of these priesthoods. There's just no way. And we'll walk through why, okay? So you have on your sheet there at the top, we're going to contrast, compare and contrast these two priesthoods. The Aaronic priesthood applies to males only from the tribe of Levi in Israel. So this is a, a priesthood that God gave to Israel where certain men would function as priests, meaning they performed the sacrifices. Uh, they, they were the ones who had uh, priestly duties in Israel in the tabernacle and then later in the temple to perform these sacrifices that God gave to his nation that, again, prefigured or foreshadowed the work of Christ. Now, uh, here's, here's what's really important. They had to be sons of Levi. So Levi was one of the sons of who? Levi was a son of? No, not Aaron. No, getting warmer. Who was named Israel? Jacob was named Israel. And he had how many sons? Twelve, and they became who? The twelve tribes of Israel. All right, Levi is one of the tribes of Israel. So Levi was a son of Jacob. You got Jacob, twelve sons, one of them is Levi. Then as you uh, read through in uh, Exodus and the rest of the uh, Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, you'll see, of course, it's Aaron's line. Sons of Aaron are priests. And then you read into the book of Numbers, and you see, oh, it's actually uh, the line of Phineas. Phineas was the grandson of Aaron. And it's Phineas's line because of uh, something he did in Numbers chapter 25. God responded to him and said, I will make your family a perpetual priesthood. So now it's like narrowed down even more. And so if you encounter somebody who says, I'm an Aaronic priest, you say, oh, you're from the tribe of Levi? Because we can't just like switch this stuff around and make stuff up, right? Tell me how you're connected to Phineas. Have you done your genealogy all the way back to Phineas? And the answer, of course, is no. I'm sure many people who claim to have this priesthood have no idea what the Old Testament says about the priesthood. And that's a major problem, of course. So it had to be males from the tribe of Levi, more specifically through Aaron, through Phineas. Okay? They are descendants of Aaron, descendants of Phineas. And there was one high priest at a time. This is also really important, something that you'll miss here in Utah that you won't see. There was one high priest at a time in Israel, one guy who every year on Yom Kippur, as we call it today, the Day of Atonement, he would take the blood into the tabernacle into what place? What's the place all the way in the deepest part there? The Holy of Holies. And what separated the Holy of Holies from the rest? Yeah, big veil. Big veil. He was allowed to go. One person, one time a year, was allowed to go. And he could go behind the curtain, and there was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. Propitiation. That's, that's the propitiation, isn't it? sprinkling on the mercy seat. Now, that wasn't the best and final propitiation. That came with Jesus. But this is foreshadowing. He sprinkles it. And then he leaves, and that's it. One time a year, one guy, okay? 
That's really important to understand. He made sacrifices on behalf of the people on the Day of Atonement. I keep saying the next bullet before I show it. Uh, so that's what I was just reenacting. And he could enter the holy place in the temple or on the day of, or tabernacle on the Day of Atonement once per year. All right. So this is all critical to understanding that Aaronic priesthood. Uh, this wasn't something that was just willy-nilly. Anybody could have it. This isn't something that you just get and it's like a superpower. You get the priesthood and now you're like super Christian person. It wasn't like that. It was a designation for a specific office that had a specific function at a specific time for a specific people. All very specific, okay? It was for Israel and there were certain qualifications that were to be met. Any questions or thoughts on this priesthood that came through Aaron? Okay, very well. Give you a moment to finish writing and take a drink of water. Mm, the other priesthood, Melchizedekian, is very different. <clears throat> Even the name, those, you, look at the, <laughs> you look at that word and you think, those letters aren't supposed to go together like that in English. Okay? Very unique. All right, so the Melchizedek priesthood. One guy had this priesthood in all of history leading up to the time of Christ. So I'll connect those dots a little bit more later. But for now, just think Old Testament. One guy, Melchizedek. So there was no repetition of this priesthood. He didn't have children that it was passed down to. And this wasn't even in Israel. There was no one in Israel that had the Melchizedek priesthood. Okay? So this is just extremely unique. Think of a, uh, like a baseball card that is of immense value because it's one of one. You know, you'll get baseball cards that at the bottom it's like one of 2,500. Okay. It's worth a penny, whatever. Give it to your kids, put it on the bike spokes or whatever, you know, that's it. But this is one of one, one guy, okay? Melchizedek. And this is a kingly priesthood. This is very different from the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood was strictly just a priesthood where these guys were priests. They weren't kings. The sons of the, the tribe of Levi, they were set apart to be this unique tribe and one at a time, there would be a high priest down a specific line of people. But they weren't kings. They didn't have a throne. Uh, Solomon, David, Saul, uh, all the kings that followed Solomon, these guys weren't uh, you know, priests in Israel. They were kings. And the, the, uh, so the kings weren't priests, the priests weren't kings. But with the Melchizedek priesthood, this is a kingly priesthood. Melchizedek was a king and a priest simultaneously, and we'll look more at that in a moment. It's unrelated to genealogy. So again, Melchizedek didn't have uh, a progeny that took on this priesthood from him, and we know nothing of Melchizedek's parents. God didn't set his father aside and say, you will be a kingly priest, and then that's how Melchizedek became one. It's actually disconnected from that altogether. The ironic priesthood, it's all about your genealogy. You have to be from that specific line. Not with this one. It's disconnected. It's timeless. It's a timeless priesthood. And this is very interesting. So there's no like beginning or end that Scripture gives us about this priesthood. 
And this becomes a big deal in the book of Hebrews, when the book of Hebrews connects this to the person of Jesus. We don't know about the beginning or the end or the parameters of this priesthood, but it's just like this forever priesthood that one guy had. It is the most superior priesthood. In the book of Hebrews, uh, there's a connection made where you have uh, in Genesis 14, and we'll turn there in a moment. In Genesis 14, Abraham meets Melchizedek, and he like gets down before him and pays him tithes. And what Hebrews says is Levi, he was like in the loins of Abraham because Abraham was Levi's great-grandfather. And so it was like Levi being inferior to Melchizedek, the Aaronic priesthood being inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood. It was like an illustration that the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior. And we have these passages that connect these things for us. So there's Genesis 14, like I talked about, and you can go ahead and turn there. And then there's Psalm 110, verse 1 and following. And that's it for the Old Testament, which is quite interesting. The other priesthood, whole bunch of stuff about it. You read through in the book of Exodus and into Leviticus, you'll find out about what they're supposed to wear, what they're supposed to do, down to the very minute details, where they're supposed to go, when they're supposed to go there, all this detail about those, that, that priesthood. But the Melchizedek priesthood, we have Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then the New Testament, Hebrews. Kind of interesting, okay? Well, let's go to Genesis 14 together. And let's see where this shows up in the beginning. Genesis 14. Um trying to think what specific verses we should read. There are a lot of words that are hard to say in there, aren't there? <laughs> um, yeah. I'll start at verse 17, okay? <clears throat> and then I'll just read till I stop. Genesis 14, 17, it says, Then after his return from the defeat of him... And, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And here we go. This is like on the scene, no, nothing before this. This is it. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. So let's stop right there. That is just a very interesting verse. You've got in this one verse, he's introduced as king and priest. So there's our two offices together. He's king of Salem. Now, that's not uh, down the road here. This is a different Salem. In fact, there are many commentators who think this is like pre-Jerusalem. That word Salem is in Jer Jerusalem. Okay? So maybe this was Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem, king of Salem. And it says he was a priest of God Most High. Now, thinking about where we are in the storyline of human history, we're only 14 chapters, <laughs> well, 13 and a half chapters into the storyline of human history. What questions do you have about he was a priest of God Most High? You should have some questions, right? 
Like, when did God set up a priesthood? We haven't gotten there yet. That shows up in Exodus. So, he's a priest. Well, how did he become a priest? We're getting there. Spoiler alert. Okay. <laughs> so, so, he's a priest of God Most High. And this is before Israel, too. Before Israel was formed. Because whose name was changed to Israel? Remember? Jacob. Okay. And Jacob was what relationship to Abraham? Abraham was Jacob's grandfather. Okay. So, there's, there's a whole generation between. There's Isaac. So, we haven't even gotten to Jacob being born yet. So, you should have several questions. And amazingly, the Bible doesn't give us all the answers we think we want. All right? But you have this much. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 19, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal or thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. And that's it. As mysteriously as he came, he was gone. Okay, Psalm 110. So now find Psalm 110. And here's the other place we get Melchizedek in the Old Testament. It's only seven verses. I reckon we ought to read the whole psalm. Would someone like to read Psalm 110 for us? Mike? All right, so at the start of this psalm, the first verse, you have the most referenced verse from the Old Testament that we find in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord. So who's speaking to who here? Father is speaking to the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And another thing he says to him is in verse 4. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Wow. So the father is speaking this to the son, that he has a priesthood, not according to the order of Levi, but a priesthood according to the order of 
Melchizedek. So when you think of these two priesthoods, you've got these details written down comparing the Aaronic and the Melchizedekian priesthood. You have Jesus being a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And what's important? Well, it's a kingly priesthood. It's unrelated to genealogy, which is important for Jesus. It's timeless. It's eternal. No beginning, no end. Also very important. And it's the most superior priesthood. Jesus does not have an inferior priesthood. He has the superior priesthood. Critical to understand that. Now, when Jesus made his propitiation, when he made atonement for our sins, he was fulfilling the works that were carried out by the Aaronic priests. He was fulfilling the day of atonement. That's why we don't do that anymore, because he made the perfect final sacrifice. But the priesthood that he is fulfilling is the Melchizedek priesthood, okay? And he's the superior priest. Now, if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see this come up quite a bit. Uh, let me just do a quick search with that word Melchizedek, and let's see how many times it comes up in the book of Hebrews. Um, let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times the author of Hebrews mentions Melchizedek. More times than is all, in all the Old Testament, <laughs> you have the author of Hebrews saying, wait, there's something here. The father said to the son, that's his priesthood. And that's the priesthood he holds forever. And so the author of Hebrews unpacks this. It starts in chapter 5. He mentions Melchizedek in chapter 6, and then a few times in chapter 7. Okay, And let's go to Hebrews 7. While we're here, why not? Hebrews chapter 7. You'll see in verse 1 the explanation about what's going on here. Okay, someone read verses 1 through 10, and then I'll pick up after that. Who can read Hebrews 7, 1 to 10? Mandy, go ahead. Okay, let's pause right there. Verse 3 is interesting because it says explicitly here, no, no mom or dad. Well, is that true that he had no mom or dad? Is the author saying we don't know about his mom or dad? Or is the author saying he literally had no mom or dad? It says, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Is the author saying we don't know about his beginning of days and his end of life? Or he literally had no beginning of days or end of life? And yeah, then you get that verse. But it also says, made like the Son of God, or resembling the Son of God. Now, is he saying he actually is, or he resembles? So there's some debate on that. I, I tend to take Cheryl's perspective that what we see in Genesis 14 is a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus before he came to earth, and before he was born of Mary. I think that's what's going on in Genesis 14. But some people say, no, he's just a guy we don't know much about, and he had these titles, king and priest, and he just foreshadowed Jesus, and that's it. You, you're, you shouldn't 
split a church over this, okay? You shouldn't shoot at each other over this. We, we don't have a lot of information, do we? But Hebrews does give us quite a bit of information. And so I, I tend to think, yeah, he was actually, that was actually Jesus, but I'm not going to fight anybody over it, okay? All right, let's keep reading, Mandy, 4 to 10. All right, so there's that illustration I was explaining earlier that Levi, the priesthood that came from that tribe through the sons of Aaron, is demonstrably inferior to the Melchizedek priesthood because there's Levi's great-grandfather paying tithes to Melchizedek, all right? The one through whom the world is blessed because what was that promise to uh, uh, Abraham that those who bless you, I will bless and through your family, a blessing will come to the world, right? There he is bowing down before Melchizedek. It's quite the sight, right? I'll pick up reading in verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, you can also read Aaronic priesthood there, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law, a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Okay, pause. According to verse 16, how was Jesus qualified to have this priesthood? It wasn't a physical requirement, but what did he meet? Yes, he met the qualification of having an indestructible life. So, next time you meet a Mormon who says, I'm, an, I'm a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, share this verse. Say, do you have the power of an indestructible life? And you don't have to be mean about it. Just show them that's what the Bible says. That's how someone is qualified. Lizzie. There wasn't a change. Remember, Israel didn't even exist when Melchizedek showed up. Because no one could be qualified to have that priesthood. You have to have an indestructible life. So it's, a, it's just a totally different priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is you can't achieve completion, perfection, maturity through that priesthood because you've got mortal men who are priests. And just year after year, generation after generation, you're making sacrifices. It's like you're on a treadmill. But then Jesus comes along with this better priesthood 
He makes a once-for-all sacrifice on the cross, and through Him, if you are in Him, you now have access to perfection, to completion, to maturity, to hope, to assurance, to finality. And you're not making sacrifices over and over again. But you see, in Him, it is finished. And He's able to do that because of His priesthood. Lizzie. What do you mean, will we go back to the Melchizedek priesthood? We never had it. Just as it exists right now, and it's always existed. Yeah. If the Melchizedek priesthood is held by Jesus eternally. No beginning, no end. Okay. Cheryl. What can you elaborate on that some more? What the dots are that are being connected there? Okay. Yes. Yes. Well, and I think the next verse of Hebrews 7, verse 17, I stopped short of reading that one. I should have finished that verse. It says, For it is attested of him, this is quoting Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So what's the timeline there? Forever. So if he has this priesthood forever, then there you go. That's right. That's right. Okay. Okay, I want to keep reading because this the author of Hebrews is making so many good connections here. Verse 19 or 18. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed become priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So a new covenant has come with a new priesthood. The old covenant, which had the ministry of the law, commandments written in stone, was regulated by mortal priests with the Levitical, Aaronic priesthood. That's what was going on in the Old Testament. That word testament means covenant. You read the Old Covenant, you read the Old Testament, what do you have going on? A bunch of people under the law, under the commandments in stone. And they appeal to a fellow human being to make sacrifices because they keep failing. How, how did they do it keeping the law? Okay, the theological answer is, all right, they did really, really bad. And what's the penalty for sin? Death. So God gave them priests, and through their sacrifices, He allowed them to live on. He passed over sin for a time. But that was never the final answer. That was never the solution. 
The solution is what those sacrifices led up to, which is the final sacrifice of Jesus as a better priest and gives us a better ministry. 2 Corinthians 3 says we're not under the ministry of the law. We are under the ministry of who? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so we are not under the law, but we're under grace. And we are led in this life by the Spirit of God through the Word of God with full assurance of salvation, not relying on next year's sacrifice. Aren't you thankful? You get to day 360, you know, it's been almost a year since the last sacrifice, and you're thinking, oh, I need this sacrifice, I'm so dirty. <laughs> Eleven and a half months or however long it's been, I've just, I've been, oh, I've been failing with these commandments. Well, then you get saved by Jesus when Jesus comes, and you look back to the cross daily. His mercies are new every day in the cross. And you're refreshed day by day. You're renewed day by day. You're not waiting for the next sacrifice. It's finished. And you can start every day clean. You can end every day clean because he's your priest who always lives to make intercession for you. Connie. I see, yeah. So the technical answer would be yes, church leaders earlier on wanting to make uh, an emphasis on this. But I think the, like the big idea answer to that is every false religion that tries to claim Jesus somehow what they always try to do is take something in the Bible that is mysterious and then explain all of it and say, see, we have the answer. They don't want to allow for mystery. Uh, you know, we, we have quite a bit of detail in Hebrews 7 now where we're looking more and more about Melchizedek, but do we have as much information about Melchizedek and that priesthood as we do about the nature of God? Well, no, we don't. But what false religions like to do is take something mysterious and explain it and say, see, we have all the answers. Yes, yes, but not based on the Bible. And that's the crazy thing. The little that we do have that's really important, they just don't even apply. So, yeah, we have to be very careful about wanting to take something mysterious and say, see, we have all the answers. We stop where God stops. We go as far as God goes with the Bible, and we stop where God stops in the Bible. Okay. Other thoughts or questions on Melchizedek? While we're here? Okay. Very good. Jesus fulfilled the Aaronic priesthood by entering the eternal holy place and making peace with God once for all by his own blood. We no longer, as God's people, we no longer depend on sacrifices made by men in a tabernacle. There's been the once for all sacrifice, and we are the tabernacle. We are temples of the living God, individually and collectively as the church. We are the temple. And the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The curtain has been torn, and we go directly to God through our perfect mediator. Jesus fulfilled the Melchizedekian priesthood by being the eternal ruler of the universe, who after making his offering is our priest forever. And so he continues to function in this priesthood. He doesn't uh, continue to fulfill sacrifices. That was done in time. The propitiation is done. But his intercessory ministry, 
as he is before the Father on our behalf, he's doing that with the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, the timeless, superior priesthood, okay? Yes, that's it. It is finished, past tense. But his intercession is not finished because you're still breathing and sinning. Those two things go together. As long as you're breathing, you're going to keep sinning, okay? All right. All right. Uh, Quote here. I think this is John Frame. What is the resurrected Christ doing right now? He is interceding at the Father's right hand. Even now, he is thinking of us, bringing our needs to the Father's attention. Of course, Scripture also speaks of the Holy Spirit's interceding. So the Holy, Holy Spirit also intercedes, Romans 8. The two persons act in unity to bring the believer's needs before God's great throne of grace. The Father willingly hears the intercession of His Son and His Spirit. The bottom line is that we can be sure that the Father will withhold no good thing from us. The whole Trinity is on our side. God is of one mind on our behalf. And if God be for us, who can be against us? That's a good quote. All right, well, that's the last slide I have for priesthood stuff, Jesus fulfilling the role of priest. So I'll pause one more time and see if we have any Thoughts or questions on this before we move on to King? We will just start that today. Jesus is the great final prophet, great final priest. Now we'll see great final King of Kings, Lord of Lords. All right, well, this last aspect is more difficult to talk about than these other ones, about to explain, I guess, not to talk about. You can talk about it all day long, but to explain is difficult. With prophet and priest, it's pretty straightforward, though there are details that can maybe be hard to grasp. It's still pretty straightforward. With Jesus as king, it's a little bit harder, okay? And that's because there is an already not yet aspect to the kingship of Christ That makes this doctrine difficult to grasp, okay? You see that on your blanks there? There's an already, not yet aspect. And there's an already, not yet aspect to lots of things in life. I've been talking about this in recent sermons. Our salvation is already, but not yet, right? If someone asks you if you're saved, you say, yeah, but if they say, so this is all that there is? Oh, no, (laughs) okay? You're looking forward to being in heaven, If you die before the Lord's return, you're looking forward to seeing the Lord face to face. I mean, wouldn't you say that's full salvation? Being resurrected, being glorified, having this mortality put on immortality in the resurrection. But you're also as saved as you ever will be right now in that God has claimed you. He's caused you to be born again. He has set his seal on you. You belong to him forever. Already, not yet. So we get the same thing going on with Jesus as king. Is Jesus king? Well, yes. So that's all that there is? No, there's more coming, okay? That's what makes it difficult. Mandy, did you have a thought or question? No false moves. Touch your hair, I call on you. No. All right. <clears throat> so first, let's consider this, and this is probably uh, as far as we'll get today. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, and then we'll go to uh, the New Testament after that. Let's go to Isaiah 
where it was prophesied that Jesus will be a king. The great Christmas passage, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Would someone like to read this magnificent passage for us? Thank you, Katrina. Okay, so let's look one verse at a time. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, or a child will be born to us. Has that happened yet? Yeah, okay. We just had Christmas not that long ago. You remember all that stuff, right? Jesus was born. Okay, a son will be given to us. That has happened. The government will rest on his shoulders. Hmm. What do you think? <laughs> okay. So we can all agree and uh, state the United States government, no. But, you know, we can be so America-centered. I'm reminded by that. I've had Fernando in my house the last few days. And talking about Ecuador, it's so easy to forget that Ecuador exists. It's easy to forget a whole bunch of countries exist. Just yesterday in the car, my son Matthias asked asked Fernando a very American question. He said, do any other countries exist besides America? (laughs) I I hope he just didn't know what a country is, okay? Because he knows he's from Ecuador, but okay, all right. It's easy for us to forget. But is is the government of Colombia on Jesus' shoulders? (laughs) Not yet. Okay, that's a pretty good answer. Yeah, no. But what about the church? Is the government of the church? Yeah. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the chief shepherd. So in that sense, we can say, yes, but are we a nation? Is the church a nation? Well, no, we're not. Okay, so, okay. I mean, in one sense, you have Peter saying you're a holy nation, but are we a nation? Uh, No, we're an international organism, okay? All right, so let's keep going. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Do we ascribe all these wonderful titles to Jesus and lift him up and worship him? Yes. Is the whole world doing that yet? Okay. Verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government, and there will be no end to the increase of peace. That happening yet? Okay, no. That's pretty clear. There is an end to peace. We're seeing it all around the world all the time. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he's going to be establishing his kingdom and upholding it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. Has that happened yet? No. Jesus has not sat down on the throne of David. He has not sat down over his kingdom yet, has he? Now, there are some, and I think there's, there's some validity to this. There's some who will say, in heaven, Jesus is on a spiritual throne of David before this is realized physically on earth, before it's manifest on earth. I think there's some validity to that. You see the way some New Testament authors 
will use prophecies about Jesus' future kingdom on earth and start to make some applications to today. But the whole thing being fulfilled, not yet. You read through in your Old Testament about what has been prophesied about Jesus' kingdom, the Davidic kingdom that was promised to David. Jesus is the son of David. We're going to sing that song this morning. Son of David, have mercy on me. Have all those prophecies been fulfilled? Well, no, because what do those prophecies say? It talks about land and agricultural blessing and peace, no more war, swords being beaten into plowshares while the sun is reigning. And so he is reigning now in one sense, but we don't have those other things yet. Already, not yet. Okay, it's both. It's both. And that's what makes this difficult to wrap your mind around is that it's begun, but it's not all the way there yet. It will happen, though. You see here the last part of verse 7? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This will happen. Okay, Just as he prophesied, it will happen. Okay, So now let's go to uh, Matthew real quick. Matthew 2.2, first book of your New Testament, second chapter, second verse. And we'll just read these briefly because this is pretty straightforward. Would someone read Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2? Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Go ahead. Okay, we can just stop right there. You have from Jesus' birth recognition that he's king. Yeah, right. Yeah. And he's born king of the Jews. Okay. Now in John chapter 12, later on in Jesus' life, this is John 12, 12 and 13, you have this moment on the calendar we just passed, Palm Sunday, where Jesus enters Jerusalem. And the same thing is happening here where the people are recognizing him as king. It says, on the next day, starting in verse 12, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. All right. So, you have the people acknowledging Jesus as king. But were they seeking him with true, humble faith? No. I mean, these people on Palm Sunday here, who say he's the king of Israel, uh, same ones who shout crucify him a few days later. Okay? So, they wanted a king, but they wanted a king on their terms. They didn't want a king on God's terms. So, uh, you've, but you've got this recognition of Jesus as king, and you even have Jesus saying, 
the very first words of his ministry in Matthew 4, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's an introduction of this kingdom. And Jesus says, it's here. All right, so we have to figure out what that means. Because uh, if we're saying, yes, Jesus brought the kingdom, Jesus is king, but there is a limit to the peace in this world right now, and not all governments are on his shoulders. He's not ruling with a rod of iron. If you've read, have you read Psalm 2? He will rule with a rod of iron. That's not happening yet, is, he? Is, is it? He's not doing that yet. So we have to figure out what parts are already, what parts are not yet. And next week we'll get into that more, okay? Very well. Any other thoughts or questions uh, that I can answer in one minute? Stan. Really? Well, where, where were they when he was being crucified? Yeah. Yeah, but where, so where were these ones who laid the palm branches? Where did they go? This was five days before. But they knew Jesus was on trial and he was going to be crucified. Where, where were they when Jesus was stricken? Well, we, we know this for certain. They weren't there with Jesus. So where did they go? Okay. Yeah, well, um, if they weren't in the crowd chanting crucify him, they were hiding. Because the only one, the only disciple that we know, a male disciple that was there was John. There were certainly some. Joseph of Arimathea was one. Yeah. But not many. But, but I don't think these people wanted the kingdom that God was giving them either. I think they wanted a king, but they wanted a king to overthrow Rome. You see that in the disciples. They didn't, they didn't want a king who would be killed. They wanted a king who would kill the Romans. Joe. A what mentality? Yeah, definitely. Well, we're humans, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you see a crowd going this way, and you just kind of start going, right? You know? You're walking this way, and everybody's going there. Oh, hey, I guess I'll go that way. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, uh, let me pray, and then we'll go to the next thing. Father, again, we thank you so much that uh, you are who you are, and we thank you that your Son, our Savior, is King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us today to worship him in spirit and in truth. And We ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name, amen.